0: We see.
1: Don't go the way we want. Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, aka Possibility Man. We bring you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Today, we have Dr. Andrea Blanche. Her friends affectionately call her Andy. Uh, she is a specialist in trauma and resilience, and she's also one of the founders of an organization called Sarasota Strong. Andy, welcome to the show today. Thank
0: you so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Looking forward to talking with you. Okay, great. Hey, you know, I would like to talk around a theme, understanding trauma and what to do about it. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Okay, great. Now, Andy, today is just, um, gosh, what can I say? I don't want to say a special day, but today just reminds me of how timely this type of conversation is and let me share just briefly why, and then I want you to respond to this, if you will. Um, a young woman, I, I don't know her, but Chesley Christ, or Chris, I think is her, the way pronounce her last name. Uh, Chesley Chris won the Miss America, Miss USA pageant in 2019. Uh, she you know, did four years of college, then went on to graduate school and earned a master's degree in business Administration, and then she went on to get a law degree, and I believe she passed the bar examination in a home state. and uh, Andy, on yesterday, I, I discovered this morning that uh, Chesley took her life, and uh, uh, you know it just reminds me of how timely this is. So is this unusual in terms of trauma and depression? Uh, is this an unusual occurrence? Oh my goodness,
0: I wish it were unusual) um... Um, the the thing that is so is so moving about that story, Steve, is that it it would have been so unexpected to everybody that knew her, who looked at her this incredibly accomplished woman, you know, who you know, she was obviously smart and beautiful and talented and appeared to have everything in the world going for her, and yet something was so painful, and robbed her of every ounce of hope to the extent that she took her own life. it's it's so tragic. it's just heartbreaking and it shows what, it, what you know what we always say in the trauma movement is be kind to everybody because everybody has a story you know nothing about. and. So many people on the outside look so well put together. They look like their lives are just a-okay, and yet you don't know their story, what, what they lived through as a child that left scars, that left um patterns that they were having a hard time breaking, what has you know, transpired over the course of their life, what they're going through right now. I mean, it's very possible that that the very things like fame and, and publicity that appear from the outside to be positive things might yeah. have actually pushed her over the edge. That might've been too much exposure. Um, you, you just never know. and it's so true for so many of us and that's really what the trauma movement one of the things we're really trying to accomplish is helping people to understand that very issue that we all have a story
1: yeah okay so i want to roll back for just a moment you know people talk about physical health and you know we always see people in the gym or you know work it out you know but but people rarely talk about mental health. I'm not even sure if people know what that means or what it means to be emotionally healthy. So would you help us to get a, a, gra- a you know, grasp of what is mental health? What does it mean to be emotionally well?
0: So that is such a, such a good question. And uh, first of all, let me say that you are right on point around your comment that people don't get this. And not only do they not know what it is, they don't put any particular value on it. Um, it's, you know, it's seen to be something that's, you know, sort of fluffy, you know, <laughs> if you're healthy and you've got a job and you're economically secure, what else do you need, right? But men, mental health and physical health, I mean, all parts of us are so intertwined. It's um, you you can't really be physically totally physically healthy if you're not also mentally healthy. The, the, they're just too interconnected. And so you know what what we like to think of with mental health is um, it's not just the absence of mental unhealth it's not it's not just that you're not depressed it's not that you're not you just don't have some diagnosable condition a mentally healthy person is really resilient it's really capable of sort of handling what life throws at you which means you've got some actual skills okay this isn't just sort of a state that either you're mentally well or not, that has something to do with your biochemistry or something, it's a set of skills. Uh, So for example, um, the ability to regulate your own emotions, right? Not something that you're born with, but something you actually learn how to do as a young child in interaction with your caregivers. You learn that Uh, sometimes you have emotions right sometimes you get mad because you didn't get what you wanted or you know you get really really sad because you lost something or somebody that you really loved and those are natural things they're normal things emotions are what they are Um, but if you've had a positive childhood and have had positive interactions with people that you love and care about, what you learn is that those emotions don't last forever and that you can do something to regulate your own emotional state. So if you get really angry, I mean, I didn't, we do a lot of this stuff naturally, okay? A lot of it is just kind of intuitive. I remember as a high school kid, when I got really, really mad at my parents or really angry at something was going on in the world, I'd call my friend from across the street and he'd come over, we had a basketball hoop in my driveway and we'd shoot baskets And you know what we've learned in the science of trauma and resilience is that rhythmic, repetitive motion, like you know, dribbling a basketball or any of a numb dancing or petting an animal for that matter, uh, that naturally calms the nervous system. So if you're dysregulated, if you go for a walk, if you go shoot hoops with your neighbor, um, if you go you know, turn on some music and dance for a few minutes, you'll find your emotional state coming back to normal. Now, I kind of went on about that for a bit, but that's um, an example of somebody who's emotionally healthy. They know what to do when they start getting dysregulated to get themselves back um, on, the, on the straight path again.
1: And that's great. And I want to, I want to interrogate this just a little more. Uh, Because you mentioned two things. On the one side, you mentioned the word resilience. And I want to probe that a bit. And then the other side, you said, you know, a person can learn about the last, let's call it elasticity from the culture in which they grow up. You can learn that certain things are okay, but I don't come to that second. So let's focus on resilience. Um, When you say resilience, what are you pointing to? So that's also a really good
0: question, Steve. A lot of people think of resilience as an internal capacity. Um, And and if you look up in the dictionary, it'll say something like the ability to bounce back after something bad happens. Uh, and, And that, as far as it goes, is a correct definition. That's what resilience is. It is your capacity to recover after something bad happens. But the problem is that when people start thinking of that as only an internal capacity, okay? It has aspects of that. And as I said, you can learn some internal resilience. But the important thing from my perspective is that resilience isn't just an individual like characteristic. It also has to do with what kind of supports are in your environment, right? So in my case, going back to my basketball experience, uh, my best friend, Peter Knight, lived across the street from me, and Peter was always there if I needed him. So that fact of having a trusted friend in my environment who would come and help me when I was having a hard time, uh, that was part of my resilience. Mm-hmm. So the environment is is contributes directly to resilience. So if you have a family that has good parenting skills and you know and um, loving relationships and, and all that stuff, but they're living in extreme poverty and they're having to move frequently because there's job insecurity, that family is gonna be less resilient than they would be if they had the supports in their environment that they need to hold them and support them as a collective. So resilience is both
1: internal and it has to do with the external supports in your environment. That's clear. I mean, it's like, you know, what you're telling us is that, well, resilience um, could be innate. That is we have capacity to learn the resilience, but it's a lot like having a muscle. A person could have the capacity to develop the muscle, but if they do nothing with it, then of course they just have the muscles that they were born with. So that's excellent. I like, I like that a great deal. But then you said something else that that really um, strikes me. And I wanna I wanna probe it because it's like, you know, let's give you an example. I was, I got angry about two or three weeks ago. <laughs> and you know something I felt badly that I had gotten, I got angry publicly, small group, but I really was upset about something. And I let it be known that I was, I felt badly that I was upset. It took me about three weeks to say, wait a minute. It it was okay for me to to be upset in that situation. (laughs) You know, but this is what you're saying, right? Is that you can learn that certain things are okay, or you can learn that if you get upset, then something is wrong with you, which of course is more damaging. Is that about what you're telling us? Uh, that, that, that's actually carrying
0: it a, a, another step farther. And it's a really important point, Steve, because we're, we're often much better at forgiving other people than forgiving ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in general, people are a lot t- tougher on themselves than they are on other people. And that's like a higher order skill. You can get pretty good at forgiving other people And still not so be so good at forgiving yourself. So I I would say forgiving other people is elementary school. Forgiving yourself is high school level. It's tougher. And it's so important. And there are lots of, you know, there are lots of ways of helping yourself to get there. Okay. And one, um, one sort of stepping stone, which I used in the past myself a lot is, if you're having a hard time forgiving yourself because you don't like to put yourself in the center you know somehow that feels egotistical to talk about yourself and think about that like that so what you can do is you can reframe the issue in terms of others so in your case you could say to yourself all right I blew it I got mad in public and all those people got mad you saw me getting mad but you know what it probably made them feel better because (laughs) I'm human too. And everybody has gotten mad in public and everybody hates themselves for doing it. So in a way, I kind of did them a bit of a service to show them, you know what, we're all human. So you can get to forgiving yourself in a roundabout way if you need
1: to. That's fantastic! I love it, I love it. (laughs) Okay, so let's let's go further. the word trauma and you know um, uh, and, and Andy uh, I think a lot of people just use it they have no clue as to what it what it is so help us understand trauma
0: so yeah um, you're right people are using this term all over the place now and um, that's both a good thing and a bad thing it's a good thing because this quite frankly this Concept was not part of our vocabulary, you know. Ten years ago, maybe even five or six years ago, um, it, it, people just didn't think in this term, in these terms. Um, and now it seems like you can't turn on NPR without hearing somebody talking about the trauma of something. It's uh, it's really become ubiquitous. But the downside is, as you say, that a lot of people don't really know what they're talking about. Um, the simplest, the simplest way to define it is simply what, what happens to you when your capacity to cope is overwhelmed. Mm. So when something happens that overwhelms your ability to cope with the situation, So you, you know, you feel like you're not in control, you know you, you, you don't have a sense of I can handle this. Um that you can't you can't manage the pain, whatever's going on. That's kind of the simplest way to think about it. Um, another definition that goes a little a little deeper in, in a sense, um, comes from SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, and Services Administration. And they talk about um, the four E's. Uh, so they say trauma is something that results from an event or a set of circumstances. That's the first D uh, and that's important because it ties what trauma to something external to you. Okay, it's something that happened to you. Trauma is not something, you know, that's tied to your biochemistry or your genes, it's something that happened to you, it's tied to an event. Um, that you experience okay second e so that's an important word because it reminds us that everybody experiences events differently right so one event could be experienced as a horrible life-threatening thing that should never happen to a human being by one person and to another person it's like yeah well that wasn't pleasant but you know uh so every person experiences events and circumstances differently so that's important so events that are experienced uh and that have a lasting uh and have lasting negative effects uh so if you if something happens to you and you're upset for a while, maybe there are only threes. I can only think of three at the moment. Um, you're upset for a while and then it passes. That was not a trauma. So unless it has lasting negative effects, and they could be, um, you know, they could be physical effects, they could be emotional effects, they could be mental effects, they could be spiritual effects, um, but uh if it's if it's a traumatic event if it's experienced as a traumatic event it it has a lasting uh impact on you
1: yeah that's that's great you know i just happen to have a bottle uh here on my desk and you mentioned a moment ago that you know an event or an experience that a person is not able to handle so have some water in this bottle and this bottle is handling this water pretty good but if i overflow it the water is going to be Pouring out of the bottle. And I think this is what you're suggesting, right? That some people, you know, two people can have the same experience. One can handle it okay. Another, it just overflows that they're not able, able to handle it. So that's that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So there's actually
0: two different ways. Well, there's probably more than that, but at least two very, very different ways where why. Or reasons why people will experience things very differently. Mm-hmm. The one, your bottle analogy has to do with the container. Okay. So traumatic trauma is cumulative. Okay? So the the trauma you experience over your life, your your lifetime, and, and maybe even intergenerationally. Uh, It builds up. If you don't resolve it, it leaves a residue in essence in your spirit. So if you, if you had a really difficult childhood for whatever reason, maybe you were, you know, maybe you were a foster child and never knew your real parents, maybe, you you know, you had abuse, maybe you moved all the time, uh, whatever, that's, trauma, and then you know you grow up a little bit and you go to school and you get bullied. There's another set of traumas. And then you're really smart and you get a good job, but you experience racism in the workplace. There's another trauma. They all add up. So if you're a person that's carrying a very heavy trauma load, right? Uh, and then another event comes, then you're like that bottle that's half full and it overflows, okay? Whereas if you had a really good, stable childhood with lots of people who loved you and lots of positive experiences, everybody has some traumatic events, but in general, you had all of the supports and you were able to build up a lot of resilience, then that same event isn't going to overflow the bottle because you're not carrying the same level of trauma load. Mm -hmm. Right. That's your bottle example. And we never know from the outside how much trauma somebody is carrying. And as I said, sometimes there's a lot of evidence that you actually can inherit trauma load um, genetically uh, through something called the epigenome. So. Uh, If you, you know, if your grandparents had very, very hard lives, you may actually inherit a certain amount of trauma that you're carrying genetically from something that didn't even happen to you. So that loads that bottle up so you're more likely to overflow. So that bottle analogy is fantastic. Um, We often do this in workshops not with a bottle, but with weights. And so people are carrying weights and you add more and you add more and you add more and they're all doing fine. And then you add the final one, right? And they can't, you know, can't hold it in. That's That's a whole whole set of things. The other thing I want to say about why experience affects different people differently is very different and has to do with meaning, not measurement. So the meaning that you attribute to an event Really affects how that event affects you, right? Yeah. If um, if you have very strong religious beliefs, and you know you're a member of a church, and and you have the support of that, and you really believe that God has a plan for you, and that um, you might not see it at the time, but uh, that God is giving you pieces that you need to do your mission in life, then you might be able to interpret something um, very negative in a different way because you, you feel, well, there, there, there's meaning to my life and I believe that everything that happens to me is leading me somewhere because that's God's plan for me, then you may be able to take that very negative experience and wrap a different meaning around it than somebody that didn't have that religious belief. So that's one example. Another example, um, this comes from the research that we're looking at, um, at, Female soldiers after the the war in the (laughs) Balkans. And if you'll remember um, that horrible set of circumstances, a lot of women uh, in in that conflict were raped. Mm -hmm. And they they were raped intentionally by the enemy. It was a tool of war. They were... um, uh, Trying to defile the enemy, right? Um, and um, their and, and their bloodlines. So it was a strategic thing. So when um, when the, the research was looking at the women afterwards who survived this, and what they found was uh, the women who were soldiers or who were actively part of the conflict and then had that experience they were raped by the enemy they were better able to handle it because they felt they were doing their part um, in the fight for freedom so they were able to interpret this as you know i'm a freedom fighter I signed up to fight the enemy. This happened to me, it was horrible, but it happened in the course of me doing something that I really care about. I, you know, I'm a fighter and this happened and it was horrible, but I'm doing what I'm doing. I was doing what I want what I thought was right, and I'm glad I did it. You know, I'm part of the struggle. In that case, they could define the negative experience as part of a struggle that was giving their life meaning.
1: Mm, yeah, That's reframing. I like, I like I like, that a lot, reframing one's past or reframing an event. I want, you mentioned soldiers and, and war a moment ago. So I want to look at this because a lot of people, in fact, I did before, when I heard trauma, I'm thinking either people in, military, in the military or, or veterans of the military and who had been in war. But then I'm thinking you know, from life, I'm thinking well, there could be two sides of this. There's life as a regular person. So is there a difference between those? Let's look at them as two groups. Is there a difference between the trauma experiences, life as a regular person, life as a soldier, a veteran of war, Um, so that's, that's a complicated question. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) It's okay. It's good. It's just, um, um, uh, uh, so the first thing I will say is, um, that on the one hand, there's no difference. So your soul, if you, if you experience an acute trauma, um, you know whether it's um, whether it's you know witnessing violence or experiencing violence or or living through a disaster. The specific type of trauma doesn't matter so much. It's going to have the same impact on your brain and your nervous system. So in that respect, okay, being a soldier and seeing violence in Iraq. See, you know, seeing an ID, um, an ID blow off somebody's leg or being a kid in uh, in the, the city and watching somebody get, you know, watching a neighbor um, get shot or something else bad happen. There's no there's no difference in terms of the impact on your your nervous system, but there is a really big difference, and it's important to know that, like like being in a war zone or being raped or wit- witnessing a one time event, uh, that's that's a, a, a an acute one time trauma. Okay. That's what we first started looking at when we first started looking at trauma, um, and that's what usually causes PTSD. And we have a whole, you know, body of research and interventions around that. What we've learned, and this is where the distinction comes in—not just war versus regular life, but um, a more subtle distinction—is that chronic toxic stress, which is living in stressful circumstances with little small traumas, but over a prolonged period of time, that can ha- also have the same impact on, on your nervous system and on your psyche and on your soul as the acute one time stress does Mm -hmm. so if you you know if you grow up in poverty and uh you don't have a lot of loving relationships and um and you're a person of color in a racist society constantly uh assaulted by microaggressions it, it it nothing individually looks the same as getting raped or watching somebody blown up in terms of those are acute traumas but that accumulated toxic stress of living in that those kinds of circumstances actually has the identical impact on your nervous system Mm -hmm. so um so they're the same and they're different, if that's making any sense.
1: makes a great deal of sense. You're know, telling me that you know there could be an event, a single event, but there could also be some learned experiences as well, which could produce some kind of results. Um, that's, hmm. a, that's subacute, yeah.
0: chronic, mm-hmm. toxic stress. So the way you can think about this, if you, if, if you don't mind me going into a little um, neurobiology here. Let's do it. So uh, the the um, brain is wired, right? Uh, to when you're in a fearful situation, when you're confronted with danger, right? We all we all have heard about um, fight, flight, or flee, right? Your brain is wired if. There's danger out there, you're walking through a jungle and you see a tiger, right? What your brain is wired for you to either run like heck to get out of there, freeze and hope it doesn't see you uh, or fight it if you're really brave. And that's a, a biological response. That actually is um, determined in the back part of your brain. Um, it's not a thinking response. It's an instinct. Okay, You don't have to think to yourself, oh my goodness, there's a tiger. Uh, that tiger killed me. I think I better get the H out of here. Right? It just happens in a flash because it's, it's, your, your brain is wired to do that. And so, and it, you know, it floods your, um, your bloodstream with adrenaline that helps you run faster and all these stress h- hormones. Um, and that helps you um, respond. And so if you have an acute trauma, all of that happens in a flash. But if you live in a set of circumstances that you're in sort of a chronic state of fear, right? you're not running from a tiger but you never know if your dad who sometimes drinks too much and then comes home and beats your mom up you never know whether he's going to come home from work drunk or sober so as a little child you're constantly in fear okay over time you know, nothing that bad ever happens to you, but you live in fear for years, sort of at a chronic level. Your body, your brain, and your body are in a state that's ready for the fight, flight, or freeze response continually. And so you can see why, well, those stress hormones that are meant to just flood your body once and then settle down after you get safety. They're kind of there all the time. So they have the same impact uh, on your body and your brain over time as the um, acute event. Does that make uh, sense?
1: Makes a lot of sense. I got it. That's that's great. Um, we all need this education. I'm so glad you're with us today. So just two things. And this is kind of just gonna kind of be, you know, just kind of, I don't know, hate to say random, but I want to ask this because I've seen this. Uh, and it's very sad. Um, one is I've seen two sets of parents, both experience the horrible thing, which was the loss of a child. Suddenly, just suddenly a child just, no diseases, just dies. One set of parents seemingly never recovers. It's just like, they just wiped out forever it seemed. Another set of parents seemingly are able to live this, experience with a sense of loss and hurt, but yet yeah, live more vibrantly. Maybe you've already talked about this, but I find that fascinating just to see both experience the same event, but then different responses. Can you help me out with that?
0: No, no, I really can't. <laughs> I'll, have some, I'll make some observations though. The first observation I would make is that you don't really know what's going on with those people. Mm. Right? Remember you, you, you can't always tell from the outside. Right, right. So it's very possible that the parents that seem to be doing really well mm. and carrying on mm. and hurting but 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 moving forward, you know maybe they're gonna turn out to be like that woman who seemed to have everything going for her and ended up committing suicide, yeah. okay? Whereas the, the parents that are really stuck, well, they're, you know, they're, dealing, they're dealing with their pain and they're not through it yet. They're stuck with it, but you also don't know when they're gonna make the breakthrough, at what moment. In what set of who is going to come into their life who listens to them in a certain way and hears what happened to them in a certain way and suddenly they feel heard and seen and understood mm-hmm. and it
1: lifts that so <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's perfect i mean and that's what i did is what a lot of people probably do and what you just you know reminded me of is making assumptions You know, you just don't know. And it's good to know, but you don't know. Very good. Um, This may also seem to be a random question, but I want to ask, and I could be dead wrong on this, but I want to ask uh, why does it seem, at least to me, that trauma or anything that involves emotional health scare people so? Now, I could be wrong on that, but it just seems to me that way. Some people seem to be frightened by it.
0: Yeah, so that kind of, that goes back to your question about mental health too. Mm-hmm. Um, why are we so afraid of of mental health um, and trauma? So I I th- I think you are right. I don't think you're wrong about that. Uh, and the first thing I'll say is, um, uh, particularly on trauma, particularly around childhood trauma, and the more acute forms of People do not want to talk about it. They simply don't. Okay, so nobody wants to think about childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's hard, to, it's, it's, it's hard to hold that image in your mind about some, how somebody could hurt a small child. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's painful, and people just don't want to go there because it hurts, it hurts a compassionate person to think about that, to hold that image and and very young children um, are sometimes hurt horribly. And it's, it's, it's because we're compassionate human beings and people haven't learned the emotional skill and it's hard, it's what therapists learn to do to keep some some emotional distance, to empathize with what's going on. Okay. So you you train yourself to hold that image of in your mind of, of a, a child being abused. And you empathize it and you feel it. And then you keep it from affecting you too badly. Mm -hmm. So you learn to protect yourself by not allowing the pain to consume you, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay? So that's, I think, um, especially around trauma, especially around childhood trauma, it's just really, really hard. And uh, one of the things that we... Uh, we we work really hard in the trauma movement is um, to recognize that it can be traumatizing to people Mm. to hear about or think about or see somebody else's trauma. In fact, there's a, a lot of evidence that, again, your brain, your body, your psyche, your soul can be traumatized By somebody else's trauma so it's called vicarious trauma or secondary trauma so listening to somebody else tell their story of their own trauma can traumatize the listener okay so part of it is a self-protective response that is a good thing it's people protecting themselves from trauma by not wanting to look at it too closely. So it's important not to be judgmental when people don't wanna talk about it or think about it or look at it because they're, they're protecting themselves right. and, and, and good for them for protecting themselves. And what we do in the trauma movement is we try to help people know how to tell their own stories in such a way that the story is not traumatizing to whoever you're telling it to and observe that. So uh, if I am talking about trauma to an audience, I wanna be acutely aware and paying attention to how is this information affecting the people who are listening to it? Because I could be triggering them I could be traumatizing them by telling them stuff that's really, really hard and they're empathizing and they could get traumatized from that or they could have their own trauma and that trauma is being triggered. Okay, so you got two things going on here. Listening to somebody else's trauma is traumatic. Listening to somebody else's trauma could trigger memories of your own trauma that you have very carefully hidden away because you're not ready to deal with it yet. Okay, so um, it's it's uh, something that you have to be really, really sensitive about on the mental health side. Let me just say this. Um, I think um, people are scared of mental health problems uh, because they're afraid of their own potential for going there. Okay, So you look at somebody that is um, so depressed that they can't pull themselves out of it. Something in you knows that you could go there. Every human being could end up there if life dealt you enough serious blows. So you look at somebody who's schizophrenic and um has uh has lost touch with reality something in you knows i too could lose control over my thoughts and that's so frightening to people Mm -hmm. think they don't think it consciously but at some level they know that that's a a human condition that could happen to anybody depending on what happened to them. And it's really scary to think about that. So both in terms of the symptoms of mental health problems and in terms of violence and trauma, um, there are good reasons why uh, people are reticent to jump into it too deeply.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's a big thing because the wrong person would not get into a business that they really can't handle can't help the other person so that makes sense i guess it's a lot like a a medical doctor you know who doesn't like to see blood and he's studying surgery he better do you better do something else (laughs) Uh, okay so i want to switch gears just a bit i want to ask you a global question we've already talked about some of this already but i want to ask this global question anyway and that is uh, can anything be done to help a person who has lived with, and I want to talk about, mention depression first, and I want to say like chronic, I'm trying to say depression that has been protracted for a long time and also trauma. Can a person who has lived with this for a long time be helped? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and
0: we see it, we see it every day we see people who've carried very heavy trauma loads start healing. I mean, that's what this work is all about. Uh, it, 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 it's never too late. I mean, you could have lived a whole lifetime carrying a trauma load uh, and it could turn around like this. So I know what your follow-up question is gonna be, well, how, right?
1: <laughs> go ahead, go for it.
0: <laughs> so, uh, the 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 first thing um, that we know is you can't you can't stop start healing from trauma unless you feel safe. So a lot of times people are not only carrying around the impact of the trauma that, that they that occurred in terms of health conditions and mental health conditions, but they're carrying around uh, a feeling of lack of safety. Okay, Like I'm never really going to be safe uh, because their brains learned way back when that the world wasn't a safe place. So uh, it's really important if you're going to help people, to make them feel safe and in control. So to the extent that uh, you can help people feel like they're controlling their decisions, uh, it, then a sense of control makes you feel safe. Uh, so that's that's really um, absolutely fundamental. You don't wanna be telling people what to do or to fix themselves or you know doing anything to them even talking with them ask permission first would you like to share your story with me do you want to sit down and talk so that you're you're putting power back into people's hands every chance you get you're returning power that was stolen from people Mm. um then this this the, the second thing is just don't underestimate the power of listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People need to be heard. People will not, they will, listening without judgment. It's very hard to heal if nobody, if you think nobody believes you or has been willing to listen to you tell your story. Mm -hmm. So giving people an opportunity, again, not asking them to tell their story, but giving them the space to share if they choose, Mm -hmm. and then listening with absolute no judgment. You are just there to listen and to reassure them that whatever happened was not their fault. And, you know, that should never happen to anybody. The, The power of that simple listening stance and that simple non-judgmental stance. I can't tell you how many people their entire lives have been turned around because somebody took the time to actually listen to them and let them speak their truth mm-hmm. so they're very they're very small and very simple things um, that you can do. Um, going back to your uh, your opening, Thing about getting mad and not being able to forgive yourself for three weeks. There's a, a another reframing that that is sometimes really helpful as well, and that is that without 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 sounding too far out there, um, our soul often knows exactly what's going on. And is trying to communicate with us in some ways. And if you can look for what is the wisdom, not the benefit, but what is the wisdom in what I'm feeling right now? Okay. There was once a, you talked about depression. And one of my favorite books on depression is called The Wisdom of Depression. Mm. And basically the premise of the book is there's something, there's something going on internally that, you're, that your depression is trying to call out to you. It's trying to point out that something is not, something is amiss. Something is not the way it ought to be. And so if you can look at your depression as a gift, as a message that's trying to teach you something about, maybe you're missing something in life. Maybe you're looking at something wrong. Maybe you're blaming yourself when you don't need to. Maybe you're carrying a load that isn't yours to carry. But if you can think of your symptom as, a message from your soul that's trying to tell you something important, uh, that can often make a huge
1: difference. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Gosh, our time together just flew by like nothing. But I got to ask you one last question. We have a couple of minutes. And that is, I know that you're one of the co-founders, if not the founder of an organization called Sarasota Strong. Would you first tell us what is Sarasota Strong? And what do you, what do you all do uh, these days?
0: Okay, so first of all, um, uh, Sarasota Strong is less of an organization and more of a social movement, okay? okay. So we don't really have a founder. Uh, we don't have any formal leadership structure. Uh, we are a growing group of people who live in the Sarasota community, who understand how important this information about trauma and resilience is, and understand the um, the really the transformative power of looking through a trauma lens. Because once you really start looking through a trauma lens, and you recognize that all of our social problems, all of our social problems, tie to, to to violence and trauma that has damaged us in some way and that we can heal from. Mm-hmm. And once you start looking at the world that way, you can't unlook at it that way. It changes everything. You see somebody in the street and you ask yourself, geez, I wonder what happened to him that he ended up in the in set of circumstances instead mm-hmm. of saying that bum, that lazy bum or whatever. Mm-hmm. We've said in the past. So it's really a transformative lens. And there's a growing number of people who recognize this that, you know, this is maybe a key to a better future for all of us globally. If we could really understand it and really look through this lens and maintain that compassionate, non judgmental um, perspective. So we're just a group of people who came together and said, let's try to spread this message in whatever way we can to ordinary people. Trauma is way too important. This information is way too important to stay in the hands of professionals. Mm. You know, in the hands of professionals, you can have a trauma treatment model, but in the hands of ordinary people, this information can transform the world. Mm. So, Our vision is that every person who lives in Sarasota County and Manatee County and Florida and the world, ultimately, eventually will understand this. It'll become second nature and it will literally transform our our helping systems. It'll transform our governments. It will transform the way we interact with each other. It'll transform the way we interact with the planet. With Mother Nature, uh, when we truly understand this, so that's really that's our that's our mission. <laughs>
1: that's great, I love it. Uh, may I place the link to the Sarah Strong website in the description where I talk about this uh, this video sure. and audio? Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Blanche it has been my pleasure to uh, talk with you to, uh, today. I've learned a great deal and. At some point, I got to get you. I got to get you get you back. So, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been yeah. fun, Steve. All right, you've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast with our guest, Dr. Andrea Blanche. Uh, we strive to bring you people who, you know, who strive to better people's lives and be a force for good. And I'm sure you'll concur that Dr. Blanche is one of those people. Dr. Blanche, thank you so much again for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Bye.
0: You are not alone, just keep on, keep on, keep on going.